0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Jessica Bacall about her book, The Rejection That Changed My Life. Welcome to the show,
1: Jessica. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this extremely important topic of rejection that nobody wants to talk about, but we all need to know more about. Before we dive into um, that, I wonder if you would please tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, so let's see. My background, uh, also I should tell you I have a little bit of a cold. I'm getting over, so I hope I'm not too nasally, but... um it's going around here. Uh, I grew up in New York city and, um, I was an elementary, uh, teacher originally. So my background was not in academia. Um, but, um, then I, uh, I was always writing. So I, um, actually went back uh, to Hunter college and got an MFA in writing, um, and was doing different things to make money and, um, ended up, Um, getting married and moving with my husband to Western Mass. Uh, He's from Amherst and there's five colleges here. And um, as listeners may know, uh, and um, I had always had these really warm feelings about Smith college because um, my, some very close friends had gone to Smith. And so I thought, Oh, if I could just get a job at Smith, you know, just even a part-time job, because at that time, um, my first child was a baby, Um, and I'll write, and I'll be a mom, and I'll work part-time at Smith, and I got a job um, on a grant-funded project uh, that was at that time called the Women's Narratives of Success Project, Um, and really what it was, uh, it was these two really smart women, one the dean of the college, Maureen A. Mahoney, and the other, Dean of Religious and Spiritual Life, Jennifer Walters, who wanted to develop a program um, that would engage undergraduates in reflection about success, about failure, about what mattered to them. And so I was in charge of helping them develop this week-long retreat um, where we took juniors and seniors away. They had to apply to be part of the program. We took them away and we did a lot of just writing and talking, and it was really um, transformative. I think it was transformative for the students um, we found in some qualitative data that we collected years later. Um, but also, it was really transformative for me. And I started to really, um, I just felt like I real—I believed in the mission of Smith, of educating women Um I think at that time it was educating women for lives of distinction, but I I just really, I loved being at a women's college. Um, I, um, and I just, this turned into my career and I ended up going back to the university of Pennsylvania and getting a doctorate and my role at Smith evolved so that, um, I've done different things over the years. And I can talk about that part of it is the, um, (laughs) the impetus for the book, but, um, now my I, my title is Director of Reflective and Integrative Practices um, at Smith College, and I also direct something called the Narratives Project, um, which is kind of the leftover title from what used to be called Women's Narratives of Success Project. And um, so all along, si- since I arrived at Smith, which was 15 years ago, I've been involved in this work that engages um, these young people in thinking about identity and thinking about purpose and meaning.
0: Thank you for that introduction. And it does tie into the book as I was listening. When I was reading the book, uh, one, I was really grateful that you tackled this topic of rejection because it's been on my radar since I got this channel. And um, as you found when you were trying to write the book, not many people want to put their rejection story out there publicly, and yet we all have rejection stories. And as I was reading the book, I was thinking there's a mess of success. Mm-hmm. Success is so messy, but we don't want to um, share that part. And there's, there's parts of my guest stories that I know from off air, but like every journalist, I can't tell you that. If they share it with me, but they don't feel comfortable saying it on air, then, then that's not going to be part of my my right to say it ever. Yeah. And yet, so many times I wish they would. This is this is so valuable for listeners to know that you didn't just go from A to B. It it makes getting from A to B even more important and impressive. Um. But it's so hard uh, for guests um who are female, who are um African American, mm-hmm. if you're. From any underrepresented group it's at times dangerous to publicly admit that you had difficulties Mm -hmm. and so you tell us in the beginning of the book that when you reached out to different um, uh, participants for this book to share their story you got rejections for your request to talk about rejection can you talk about um, (laughs) the early stages of putting together this book
1: yeah um so I the book well I can tell you about the the origin of the book and then I'll tell you about the early stages so um I had a previous book that uh, was interviews with um these amazing women about mistakes at work but then I thought like okay that's I'm never going to do a book like that again cuz it's so hard to find contributors you know I was lucky that these these women you know um wanted to talk about mistakes, but I really pulled out all the stops in terms of like contacting friends of friends and reaching into the Smith alumni network and like cold calling, um, you know, people's agents and, you know, ended up with a, an amazing group of, um, interviewees, but I, I thought, you know, I don't want to do that again. Um, in part, cause I, yeah, it's a lot of rejection and, and that can be tiring. Um, but then, um, At Smith, this job came up that was, um, it was kind of, it was a big, new big job. And it was something that I felt like I wanted to apply for. I felt like I should apply for it. It was kind of um, aligned with what I was already doing with some leadership development. It It was a new leadership center. And so I went through this whole internal search at Smith uh, that really stressed me out. I had to get, you know, recommendations from people I knew and be interviewed by people I knew. And, you know, anyone who's been through an internal search can probably relate. There's like a certain kind of um, angst (laughs) that you experience. And then um, I had to give a big public talk, uh, but then I didn't get the job. They gave it to someone else. They gave it to um, an outside candidate who, um, it turns out is, is really wonderful. And she's a colleague now, but at the time, um, it was, it was just kind of humiliating, you know, and it was a real letdown and it was embarrassing because it was this failure in front of all of my colleagues and, um, or that's how it felt. And I, I just thought, you know, well, okay. Then there's this other part that I was also relieved. (laughs) I was also a little bit relieved that like, okay, now I don't have to run this brand new leadership center. I don't have to create something from scratch. Um, like part of me was like, oh, maybe I I didn't really want the job, but I wanted the recognition that would have come with being offered the job. And I just thought that was kind of interesting. And um, I thought like, okay, maybe it would be interesting to collect rejection stories. And maybe I would do one more of these books that are, you know, where I interview people and kind of turn the interviews into essays. Um, so I pitched it to my agent. My agent really liked it. And I started reaching out to people and there were definitely people who, who loved the idea, but there were also people who were like, oh, I don't know what I would talk about. Like, I, um, I have a friend, um, who's very successful, who she felt like she definitely has, she's in the media uh, business and she felt like she's had a lot of rejections, but she didn't want to talk about them. She just didn't feel comfortable, um, you know i think sometimes in part it's because uh these kinds of things implicate like the, someone you know someone else is involved maybe maybe a, re- a rejector who who my friend still works with um but there were people like i had a phone call with someone who um is an entrepreneur and um runs her own business and she she asked me she was like i just because i told her the the title is the rejection that changed my life and she said i just the title does rejection have to be in the title? You know, I just, I don't like that word. Um, and I, I just thought it was funny. Like, and she she didn't want to tell a story either. She just, she didn't feel comfortable. Um, and, you know, they, they weren't the only ones. There was a, a, a well-known professor whose work I really admired, um, who actually did interview for the book. But then when she read the interview, she was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. Um, and I think, in a certain way, she didn't fully understand the the project of the book and the goal, but she you know basically changed her mind. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of rejections. And um, you know, the one the one from this this professor who I admired that was maybe the most hurtful, But then I thought, okay, like this is this is good for me to have to experience real rejection as part of this process. You talked
0: about when you got rejected or this job that you thought you wanted to be the director and you were actually relieved. And you write about that in the book that part of what you do after you get a rejection is check in with yourself about how you're feeling. And if you're relieved on top of the other normal feelings um, that come with rejection, then that's important information. Mm -hmm. But if you're, a little bit past the rejection, you've given in a little bit of time and it's still bothering you, then you know you need to keep trying. And you gave another example in the book from your own personal life about applying for grad
1: school. Mm-hmm. Can you talk
0: about how you handled that rejection differently? That wasn't one where you you felt the relief.
1: Right. Um, so I was applying for doctoral programs. And one of the places I applied was Penn. And um, this was a program where I, I would have had to go. Um, I, ha- I would have to go every month and be away from my family. And my kids were pretty little. Uh, I would have to be away in the summer. And I I really thought that I was a shoe in I already had a book out. I was like, oh, I'll definitely get in. And I did not get in. And I just was like, at that point I was like, okay, that's, not. it's just not happening. Like if they don't, you know, and it, I thought, okay, I, um, it would have been a bad idea. I would have to leave my kids and be, you know, be away all this time. And, um, it's so far to go to Philadelphia from Western Massachusetts. Um, but then, you know, I did still think about that program. It's a great program. Um, it's, it's one of these, um, doctorates that you, you can, you do with a, you go through it with a cohort. Um, and so I basically I was out to lunch with with some colleagues and they were asking me, you know, are you going to go to grad school? They knew I'd been applying and I said that I'd been rejected from Penn and one of my colleagues just said, "Well, why don't you reapply? That's what people do." Like when you, you know, I tell students this all the time and I thought like for myself, yeah, that's true. I I tell that to students like you you can reapply to things, but I was not telling myself. And so I just, I realized like, okay, maybe it's worth trying again. You know, maybe this is something that like, before I decide I don't want it, I could at least put myself out there, you know, one more time. It's not going to kill me to, it's not going to kill me to get rejected again. Um, so, so I did reapply, I got in and I, and I went and I, you know, I'm really glad, I'm really glad that I ended up um, doing the program and, um, I feel like it's led to good things um, in my life and in my work and, you know, I met great people. Um, So, so yeah, (laughs) that was a situation where I I put, I, you know, put myself back out there.
0: And the subtitle of the book is 25 plus powerful women on being let down, turning it around and burning it up at work. And the book itself, you, you divide up into about five different parts. And Mm -hmm. the first part is rejection is data the second part is creativity is on the other side. The third part is rejection is a muscle. The fourth part is take a new path. And the fifth part is a rejection workbook. And I really encourage listeners to, to do the rejection workbook. Last night, I, I stopped in um, making my notes and I did two of the exercises in the rejection workbook. Um, so it. it it's a book that really invites us to look at rejection in a number of different ways so that we can come out the other side. Can you talk a bit about what you mean by rejection is data?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to think about this. I mean, one is um, the way that we, we talked about already where, um, you might experience feelings after a rejection that include relief, <laughs> and sometimes that can be seen as you know even your your own emotions can be a kind of data that that maybe you didn't want the job, but um, you know the other uh, oh and there's someone else who um, talks about using her emotions as data who I just want to highlight um, Laura Wong who's a professor um, uh, at um. Harvard Business School talked about becoming a new professor and having um, been advised to network and asking um, a very busy uh, kind of big deal dean to lunch and then sitting down and realizing she had nothing to talk about. And it was like this um, very angsty lunch that really stressed her out. She felt like, you know, she was sitting down with this important Dean to network. And the Dean was kind of asking, like the Dean was waiting for her to have some kind of list, some kind of specific agenda as the reason she'd asked him out to lunch. And, um, she felt so kind of embarrassed by this, the whole situation that she realized, like, maybe that embarrassment is data. Maybe this is not how I want to get to know people in my new position as a professor. And and maybe I should come up with other ways. And she started to, um, join committees and, um, Find other ways to get to know her colleagues in a way that was a little um, that felt a little less pressured, um, where she would feel more comfortable um, as the introvert she was to kind of um, like strut her stuff and like show how smart she was, but not not the same uh, pressure. Um, Wong and um, and at at least one other academic um, also talked about using, um, rejection as data when they sent out articles. (laughs) So Wang, um, when she was first trying to get published was sending out pieces with well-known colleagues who had published a lot. And also with, um, people who were kind of on her same level who had not been published in a lot of journals. And she would, you know, get these notes back from journals and, uh, you know, get rejections and kind of them up um, and categorize them based on the kind of feedback she got. And what she realized, and none had been published, she wasn't getting anything published, but what she realized is she was getting more encouragement um, on the pieces that she was working on with people who were at her level. So like not the very well-known academics, but um, more of the newer people. So that that was one way in which she kind of um, categorized the data that was coming back um, and was able to to use that rejection, those rejections to ultimately like put her energy into working with that, you know, colleagues who were newer in academia and and get published. Um, I'm trying to think what else, another, um, other rejection as data. I mean, Laura Weidman Powers, um, who is actually an old friend um, of mine, she's she's a little younger than I am, but I've known her since she was really little, and she's um, she's always been really driven. And she she went to Harvard, and then she went to um, Stanford and got an MBA JD combined. And then she was out in Silicon Valley and couldn't get a job, and she kept sending out resumes, sending out resumes, having meetings, and she couldn't get a job. And meanwhile, uh, this old friend of hers was like, "Hey, let's start a nonprofit." Uh, to help women and underrepresented minorities get jobs in tech. And she kind of was like, well, I have these fancy degrees. I want a job at Google or I want, you know, I want one of the big jobs with the great health insurance and the cachet. Um, And these just were not coming to her at the time. And she ended up um, kind of thinking, all right, well, where am I getting traction and really using that as data? I'm getting traction with this old friend who wants to start this nonprofit. And uh, she she joined him, and it really just blew up. Um, you know, they had t- they had investors almost right away. Um, it's she's not the um, she's not there anymore, but it's still thriving. She's now at the Echoing Green Foundation. Um, you know, I think a way in which she also talked about rejection, kind of the invisible data that that we get um, in rejections. Um, sometimes we don't that we don't realize. Um, so she she realized much later that she, you know, she is a woman. Uh, Her name is Laura. So very clearly a woman, but also people could probably tell from her resume that she's black because she was part of, you know, things at Harvard, like the Black Students Association and um, things like that. And she, you know, in hindsight, she thinks, well, you know, maybe my not getting a job was kind of evidence of the exact thing I ended up kind of going into battle against, which was, you know, I was facing this kind of prejudice that, you know, not getting interviews because I, you know, because I'm a black woman, um, which is something very real. We all know about in the tech world. It's very white, very male. So, um, so, yeah, and that's the kind of data that um, is harder to see when you. I think when you're in the middle of it. Sometimes we're having these experiences and we don't quite realize like we're we're facing some kind of bias or prejudice, Um and often there's not much we can do about that except do what she did, which is like, you know, t- pursue other routes.
0: And part of these silent parts of rejection are why you wanted to write the book. When, when people get these rejections, and, and your, your writers in the book are all women. Yeah. And one of the things you noticed about women is when they get the rejections, they tend to go off and think, well, I, I was rejected, rather than that maybe we've learned something about the system that mm-hmm. you just applied to. We've learned something about the biases that are in uh, the program that you just applied to. And that rejection is part of the entire life process. And so yeah. when we start collectively sharing our rejection stories, we bring ourselves into a shared experience. And that means it's something that we can all move forward from rather than you were rejected, go away and stay away. Mm-hmm,
1: yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, people tend to think this is, you know, I'm the only one that this has happened to. Um, and one of the exercises that I include at the end of the book is this exercise in, um, self-compassion. Um, Oh, my dog is coming into the room. Um, (laughs) there your listeners may know about the work of, um, Kristen Neff, who's a professor at UT Austin and, um, her research on self-compassion um, shows that, you know, part of what helps us get past things like rejection is um, kind of acknowledging the universality uh, universality of these kinds of experiences. Um, and rather than thinking in this way that um, makes you feel isolated, realize like this is part of being human. You know, these kinds of experiences um, connect me to other people. And then I think, you know, when, when you are experienced, another um, way to to deal with bias, um, is to make connections and networks with, um, with people who share your identity there. So I have, um, Polly Rodriguez, who is one of my interviewees started this, um, sexual wellness company called Unbound. And, um, like when she was first pitching this company, like she couldn't get any funding and all these, um, it was, you know, usually men she was pitching it to, and it was about women's sexual wellness, and they basically didn't get it. And um, she ended up not only getting funding; uh, her first, her first round of funding uh, was her the first funding she got was from, was from a woman. Um, but not only getting funding, but um, reaching out to people who might have been seen as her competitors, like other. Uh, female-identified um, people who were in this space and, like, gradually building relationships and then creating, that like, a network where they actually um, do things like uh, get health insurance together and they have these big meetups and they share they share all kinds of data with each other about the industry. So um, she went from kind of feeling this sense of, like, um, rejection, but also experiencing this bias to like, forming this n- brand new community.
0: One of the other things I liked uh, about the rejectionist data is section is we all got a validation for crying. And um, I, <laughs> I cried my way through grad school. I uh-huh. remember being at a meeting with a professor and he looked at me and he said, are you crying? And I remember saying, I'm trying really hard not to. Can we please ignore that oh. I'm crying during this meeting? <laughs> and, um, you know, it was interesting because his gut feeling was that I was crying to manipulate him. Uh-huh. And I was crying because. I was having such a difficult time and I was so determined to do the meeting anyway. And so he learned a lot about me from my response, which was I'm trying really hard not to cry. I would like us to do this meeting as though I am not. And um, but Angela Duckworth, who's interviewed in the book, she she says on page 19, it's it isn't about not crying. Yeah. You can cry all you want. The question is, do you get up again? And I wish that I'd had that. I, I wrote that on a sticky note. That will be staying up in my office. Wow. But I wish <laughs> that I'd had that as a grad student, um, yeah. not because I wanted to cry my way through more meetings, but because I was having difficulty giving myself permission. And I think feelings just sort of built up. And unfortunately, in a meeting is not where you want to cry. But, you know, sometimes being human happens.
1: Yeah yeah I loved that. I just could that was one of my best moments, you know and and biggest surprises was hearing from Angela Duckworth, you know, the seminal researcher on grit how much she cries, <laughs> and um, you know, she said something like, you know, more tears have gone into my husband's shirt collar than I want to think about um And it was exactly what you're saying that it's, she was saying like, it's not that you don't feel the disappointment. It's not that you don't cry and that you, you know, that you shouldn't feel bad about a rejection, but it's about like you cry and then you move on. So yeah, I really loved that.
0: And yeah, she says that I also wrote another quote from her on page 20. She said, when I get discouraged, which I honestly do, I get discouraged a lot. I remind myself that I'm in it for the long game. You really Mm -hmm. do have to think of it as a long game. Not every day is going to be good. And I have to say, yes, for the, you know, foremost grit person, um, for her to say that, it really changed my sense of what she meant by grit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How? I mean, how did it change your, your sense? I think I thought
0: grit wanted me to toughen up. Yeah. And I think in reading this book where it's very clearly part of how we're going to deal with rejection. It's to be vulnerable and go forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't have to get tougher. I just have to keep going, which is what I've done, but I've sort of been frustrated with myself. Like, why aren't you getting tougher? Well, because I just feel my feelings, but I keep going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, this, this relates, I really love Kristen Neff's work. Um, She's the the professor at UT Austin. And another part of that self-compassion is allowing yourself to feel how you feel, you know, and not fighting it. And it's like, we make it worse for our, ourselves when we kind of like shame ourselves, you know, oh, you shouldn't be feeling bad. You shouldn't cry. You shouldn't do this. Um, and it, instead just acknowledging like, okay, this really sucks. This really feels bad. Um, but yeah, like you're saying that... Um, and as she said, you know, she's in it for the long haul, you know, ha- allowing yourself to have this sense of perspective, um, I think is really, is really helpful.
0: Yeah. And to know that I have grit. I didn't know that I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> what is your degree in again? History. Oh, in history. Yeah. I mean, who, you know, I just wonder, like, should it be somewhere on a doctoral um, program, like on the application page, like you will cry <laughs> warning, you will cry. Cause I think that's an experience that a lot of people have.
0: Or if I like that. And I also wonder if more applications should ask us to talk honestly about something that we flopped at. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, when we're looking at rejection as a normal part of life and essential to success, really, if you're if you're going to reach, you're not going to get everything you're reaching for. So right. to keep growing and improving, you're going to have to rack up the rejections and more rejections than successes. One of the things I took away from this book is I'm not quite sure what the ratio is, but it's definitely more rejections than successes if you're going to keep going forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I loved hearing um, Roz Chast, who is the you know, well-known New Yorker cartoonist, I asked her, okay, so do you still get rejected? And she said, yeah, most of my cartoons are rejected. You know, she she makes these cartoons for The New Yorker, and most of them are rejected. And it's like, who knew? I, you know, I just thought, oh, Roz is, she makes the cartoon, she sends it, and they, they publish it, but that's not the way it is at all. Um, and I do think it's something that, you know, if we're lucky, we learn over time that, you um, that yeah that rejection is part of you know the path of successful people and it's not that even successful people don't then feel badly when it happens but it's like yeah they they push past it and it is hard i think for young people who are there's not a lot of room built into high school uh, for failure i mean i i've never heard of um of a class, you know, in high school on failure or of, of room being really made for that. And I think, um, you know, so many students work so hard to get to college and then they they get to college and they feel all this pressure, like choose the right thing. And they, there's pressure coming from their their family and maybe their home community and, um, and pressure they put on themselves to succeed. And um, yeah, I think ideally, like that is the time when we start to introduce them to the idea that like rejection is going to be part of it
0: in part two which is called creativities on the other side on page 77 it says after rejection it can take time to find the uniquely helpful thing that unlocks your creativity Mm -hmm. everyone has a different key and two of the people who really stood out for me in that section and i i loved all the stories but we're going to trust listeners to read all twenty-five of the stories mm-hmm. um, was um, Rachel Platten's story and also yeah. Elizabeth Bell's story. Can you tell yeah. us about them?
1: Yeah, so Rachel Platten is the um, pop singer who wrote the song, the fight song. But the story she told, and it you know, it was a huge hit, and people probably hear it on the radio along with with her other songs. Um, but the story that she told me was about her life leading up to that leading up to writing a fight song and it's it's really kind of amazing like i had this idea and i don't know if other people do about people on the radio pop musicians that they're kind of like given the hits by maybe their agent or or by the production studio and then they sing them and and maybe that does happen for um for some people but like she really worked she really um you know all through her 20s and, and maybe beyond um, she would go to play gigs and she was putting out her own music and she was trying to get these record deals. And there was a, a major one that she basically almost had that then fell through at the last minute. And she was like really close to giving up. Um, she, she had kind of some things that she did, with her music, volunteering, playing in hospitals. And then she had kind of her own, um, you know, playing, playing shows, but she kind of was thinking like, should I just give up, you know, ever really having success, really being on the radio. Um, Every time she reached this point of hopelessness though, she would like put more effort. (laughs) She would put even, and maybe this is in part what Angela Duckworth is talking about with grit. I feel like Rachel Platten, really is a good example of that. You know, she, she would just feel devastated by these disappointments, but then she would think, okay, how can I get better? How can I invest more time in practicing the piano or more time in songwriting? Um And ultimately she, fight song was her, I think that was her big, her first big hit. Um, she, and it was really about the struggle, the straw, the fight to, to, really make her name and, and make music her career. Um, and I guess in terms of the creativity, you know, it was just, she would, instead of kind of feeling dejected and dialing it back, she would dial it up and she would push herself to be more creative. And I think anyone who is an artist will say, it's not like creative, creativity is just visited on you. It's something you have to work for and that's what she would do, you know, with every rejection. Um, Elizabeth Bell is, I love her story. She, um, she's a psychiatrist, uh, but when she applied to medical school, which was a while ago, it was like in the, I guess in the late seventies, she already had a kid and she was an English teacher and she had decided to change careers. Um, So she took, started taking pre-med classes and she got this study group together of women who were also kind of non-traditionally aged students and they would meet at her house. Her daughter would be in the stroller, like right next to their, their table and they'd be like eating and studying. And, um, and the whole study group applied. Uh, she applied to 17 schools. She was the only one who didn't get into any place, none of the 17 schools that she applied to. Um, and she was upset, but she really wanted to become a doctor and Instead of just letting it um, derail her, uh, she found new ways to, to figure out what to do. So she, you know, went back and took the tests again that she had scored low on or um, I think she had to retake chemistry. She met regularly with a professor of anatomy to be tutored by him, this, this um, kind professor who kind of gave her some, some one-on-one attention. So, you know, she found creative ways to, um, even though her background was not in science, uh, to really ultimately to get into medical school. And she told herself she could apply three times no more because she thought it would drive her family crazy if she kept going and kept getting rejected. But on the third time she got in, And now she's a a psychiatrist um, in a big city and loves what she does. I loved
0: her story because it it just seemed i mean she had something like seventeen rejections,
1: yeah.
0: And for, I think, many of us, it would seem like, well, there's nowhere there's nowhere else to apply. Um, and she did not have support from her parents. Right. She did from her husband, but not from her parents. And I think for a lot of people going through higher ed, we don't necessarily have our family of origin rooting us on or Maybe they'd like to, but they just don't understand at all what our dream is or why if we're hearing no over and over, we're not taking no as an answer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Her parents kept saying, your husband's going to divorce you <laughs> if you go back to school. You know, this was another time, but I think you're right. I think there there's plenty of um, college students and grad students who in the same way, don't have support from their families of origin. And, um, and she really, you know, she, she really relied on her husband to, to be a a, a good friend and a support. And, um, and she had maybe, I think she had another friend who was a doctor who kept saying, you can do it. And she, she believed that she could do it. You know, she, and it, it took, it, it took a lot of work. I mean, it took, and it took, going back and retaking things. And, um, but it was like, she knew that's what she wanted to do.
0: And she had a professor when she was at med school who took her aside and was trying to talk to her about what, what might work better for her on her first year, because her grades were not going to get her through medical school. And it's really through working with him that she learned really key study skills that she just never had had before.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, You know, yeah, no, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say at the end of every uh, person's story, they give a couple of suggestions or a couple of takeaways. Mm-hmm. And one of the through lines I noticed over and over was that you don't need a giant support network, but you've definitely got to figure out who's in your corner. And if you don't have somebody, you have to go look for somebody.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um that was huge, I think, for everyone. And, and that's <clears throat> that Polly Rodriguez is a great example of that, you know, starting her company and seeking out support actually in people who might have been seen as her competitors. Um, but Elizabeth Bell, also the psychiatrist, um, finding, you know, making these study groups peep and finding the professors who... Um, were willing to kind of give her extra help or give her, or like you're um, saying, your teacher had a study. Um, I think that um, so often college students, um, they don't recognize the the importance of that and that it, it doesn't have to be um, in terms of helping, you know, learn material. It doesn't always have to be a, a teacher, but it, it, you know, it can be peers, but it makes a big difference to have that a support network.
0: In part three, it's called Rejection is a Muscle, and I love that way of thinking about it. Um, You give us an amazing story of someone who made an outfit out of her rejection letters. Can Mm -hmm. you please tell us that story?
1: Yes. (laughs) So um, Caitlin Kirby uh, is an environmental social scientist um, who, um, when she was going to her dissertation defense, Decided that she wanted to make a really special outfit for herself, and she wasn't a crafty person. But she had seen on Parks and Rec, if listeners know that show, um, the character played by Amy Poehler had made her wedding dress out of um, like flyers or something from the the Parks and Rec department. You know, she had a couple of of models for uh, for what she was going for, but she took all the rejection letters she'd gotten throughout grad school. So like um, rejections from fellowships, um, you know, papers that were rejected, anything else. And she printed these things out and she made a skirt and she wore it to her dissertation defense. Um, and this actually was on the news. If you Google it, you can find, um, pictures, Caitlin Kirby, this is Caitlin with C-A-I-T-L-I-N. Um, and she, um, She really, she did it because she wanted to model for people who are coming up in this program, like, this is what it is to get a doctorate. There were people going to the defense who were, you know, students who weren't yet graduated. They weren't at, you know, at her stage yet. And she wanted to be transparent about, like, what, here she is getting this, um, you know, in in this very special moment of, like, you know, passing her dissertation defense. And um she's almost done with the program. But like, look at what it took to get here. And look what she had gone, look what she's gone through. Um, and yeah, I, I really love that story, too.
0: <laughs> Can you tell us about this metaphor of a muscle, that rejection is a muscle?
1: Yeah, I, I really like this idea. Um, you know, I've talked to my students about this, too. Like, when you are say you're you're learning to do push-ups. You know, you might start out on your knees and and do a push-up that um doesn't ask as much of you. And then as you get stronger, you you might lift your knees up and do a full push-up. And I think um with rejection, you know, so one way I think rejection is a muscle is that we can actually practice uh getting rejected and and make ourselves stronger through that practice. So um I have another contributor, um, Emily Winter, who's a comedian who decided she was going to try to get a hundred rejections. And she (laughs) because she um, in comedy, you know, she she had heard of people doing this and getting um, like poets who tried sought out like 20 rejections or 30. And she thought, you know, I should be able to get a hundred. So she sent out. You know, pitches to um, festivals and to shows, and um, pitches to the New Yorker Cart um, stories. And the more she did it, she said that um, it felt easier and easier. Like the first twenty were a little hard, but it it increasingly got easier. And I, I do think that, like for young people, these the first rejections that you. That you have um like your first rejections from like internships or or not getting a job um or even earlier not getting into college can feel like somehow like this indictment of yourself like it's so there's something wrong with you it's um but i think the more that we put ourselves out there um you know it becomes um like it's less of a sting and we get we get used to it and um And that's why I feel like rejection is, you know, it's, we can see it as building a muscle.
0: Rachel Platten says in, in her chapter, beautiful art comes from when you let your inner artist be wild and unafraid rather than judging her. And you also tell us later in the book, a rejection can mean that something was not actually a good fit. So when we're in a space where we're unafraid and wild, we're not judging and we're able to say, wait, this isn't a good fit. We might want to take a new path, which is part four is just people looking at things honestly and saying, I need to go in a different direction here. Mm-hmm. And two of the examples you give are right in your own backyard, your mother and your mother-in-law. Can you tell yeah. us about their stories, um, which in some ways are similar, um, of deciding to take a, a new path?
1: Yeah, um, so both my mother and my mother-in-law are, are psychologists. And, um, so I'll talk about my mother-in-law first. She, um, she was at UMass, no, she was at Hampshire College, um, which is right nearby. Um, as a, a, a writing counselor, she worked in the uh, the writing counseling center and, um, she felt like <laughs> In a, she loved working with students and she loved helping them with her, their writing. But, you know, and she's actually a very, um, un, she's not a narcissistic person or someone who needs a lot of like recognition or thanks. But over the years, it kind of got to her that um, whenever these students got up and graduated, they'd always thank their professors. You know, thank you to my professor who helped me to, you know, do this, this my thesis or this paper or that paper. And meanwhile, you know, the professor, sure, was was probably great, but hadn't been the person who had, like, sat with the student and, like, you know, witnessed the the blood, sweat, and tears of getting the paper done and and um, nurtured them through the process. And she thought, like, so part of her thought, like, she would like more recognition. And so, so in a certain way, she kind of, um, and she thought she was, she'd always been interested in psychology and, and in a certain, um, especially in Um, the psychology of writer's block, actually, which is what she ended up writing her dissertation on. And so um, she left her job at Hampshire and went to a doctoral program at at UMass and ended up working in the counseling center at UMass. Um, But it was, yeah, it was in part that kind of a certain kind of rejection that I think um, one sometimes feels as a staff member in a university space um, but also in her very specific role as someone helping these students, but feeling a little bit um, rejected in that she didn't get recognition for uh, for what she was doing. Um, and my mom um, is also actually also a psychologist, um, and uh, told the story of <clears throat> she had this job um, uh, right out of grad school where. Like even before she um, started the job, she was fired. So she went in and um, the person who was like leaving the job right before her said, oh, you should ask for a bigger office or ask for the office to be moved. And so she took their advice and she went into the, this was at a, um, it was, she had gotten a job as a school psychologist and she went to the principal and you know, said, I think I'd like my office to be moved. You know, this was... She wasn't really thinking; she was just following the advice from the the person who'd been in the job before her. And lo and behold, you know, she was then seen as too difficult and uh, was fired before she could even start the job. Um, you know, both of them as have ended up um, thriving in their careers. They both still are working as as psychologists. But you know, for me, I think they they're also both real models of resilience and of people who've like taken these hard knocks in their in their careers, um, or like reinvented themselves. Um, so I think it, in a certain way that's made me like the kind of person who could write this book. I mean, my parents, um, yeah, they've always kind of, um, encouraged the idea that like, yeah, you, you get rejected, but you can get back up and try again or, you know, figure out another way. And, um, I love that about the take a new path stories. They're all about people who kind of maybe they didn't get something that they wanted in the way they wanted, but they, they figured out a new way to, to do something that um, was fulfilling to them.
0: And one of the things that you tell us in the book, and that really comes through in both your mother and your mother-in-law stories is that we can get through rejection if the thing that we're doing has a fundamental purpose for us. We believe there's a, there's a point to what we're doing. We believe that there's a point beyond us to what we're doing. That, yes, we want to do it, but we can also see how it contributes to something bigger than ourselves. And in both yeah. of their stories, it seems that way. While working at the writing center and helping people individually is really important, if no one's really seeing what you're doing then they're not acknowledging it inside themselves either. It's not just that you're not verbally being thanked by them, but yeah. they aren't really processing how you got them through their writer's block. And so moving into a different space where you're verbalizing, I'm getting you through this writer's block, um, really changes the larger purpose of it, both for the person receiving the help and for you and continuing on. With, which, in what is a hard job? Helping people with their writing is a hard job. I've had that job and I love that job. Yeah. But you're seeing people at a really vulnerable time and their ego often is not as strong and healthy as you would like it to be. Yeah. And so she went and got the specific training for that. Right. And that, you know, that builds more resilience, I would think.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it's just been so fulfilling for her to, you know, to, um, to have a doctorate, to, to have a work and to, you know, to also have more flexibility. She was at the UMass Counseling Center for years, but now um, is doing some work in private practice. So, um, yeah, I think it was just, there was also this kind of, um, this self-respect piece of like, as you're saying, yeah, I'm doing something really hard. And I I think, you know, I could could kick it up a notch. (laughs) I could do it at at a higher level.
0: You say in the book that when men fail, in general, they get more feedback and can learn from it. When women fail, we often don't even know what happened and kind of have to figure things out ourselves. I really appreciated that you said that so clearly in the book because- Mm. I, I only in private spaces have had women share failures and they have gone off and tried to figure it out by themselves. Mm. And you suggest that there, this is part of uh, something called benevolent sexism. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, when we have failed at something or we're rejected from something and we're not getting feedback, that we can go and say, would you tell me one area in which you think I could improve? The worst they're going to say is, no, I'm not going to tell you that. But it right. does give us a starting place to start understanding why we weren't a fit for that thing.
1: Yeah. And so even, you know, in a, so say you have your your end of your review or whatever context you, you get feedback at your job, um, or, or if you're a student, you know, you might be um, just getting all, all good feedback. You know, there really might not be anything you're hearing, but I think just putting that question out there. Um, can make someone feel comfortable to like get a little bit more nuanced with you um, in terms of the the kinds of things that, um, and and c- because they know you want to hear it and they know you want to, you want to improve. I mean, and I think it's something that, um, of course it's not only men are, are guilty of this, you know, I think w- we all have this like internalized sex. I'm sure I've done it too with young women. Like, and I, and I only, um, I'm at a women's college, but um, it's hard to give, it's hard to give, um, even if you're not rejecting someone, it's hard to give feedback. It's hard to give good, clear feedback um, that is really going to be helpful to the person who's listening. Um, and I think it's it's a good start as the, if you want feedback to ask, to explicitly ask.
0: The final part of the book, part five, is the rejection workbook. Uh, and I urge listeners to get the book From your library or your bookstore so you can do the rejection workbook um because there's a variety of ways to go about um processing rejection and i appreciated that it that it gave us different methods um overall the goal is to have self-compassion and you point us towards resources Uh, if we don't even know what self-compassion is there's resources that are going to explain to us what self-compassion is but you also in exercise one invite us to look at our self-complexity that we have more than one aspect of ourselves mm-hmm. and when we can acknowledge our self complexity then we can say you know this rejection is about one part of my life and there are other parts about which I still feel pretty good which yeah. can be a hard thing to do because for me when i feel rejected just all of me feels bad my body feels bad my feelings feel bad i just feel lousy and that's a great place to start is to say, there's still some other parts of me. I may be struggling to think about what I still like about myself or what's still left of me right in this moment, but it does exist. And that's a great starting place that this one thing was rejected. Yeah. Not not my whole being.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really like this research. Um, it's um, a psychologist named Patricia Linville, who's at Duke, um, and this idea of self-complexity theory. And it, it resonated with me also because um, there is this poem that I've used f- for years and years with students um, called things you didn't put on your resume. Um, so we read the poem. People can, it's in the book, but people can also Google it thing um, things you didn't put on your resume by Joyce Sutphin. And um, it's, I love it because <clears throat> you know, she's in this poem, she's talking about being a mother, but there's so many ways in which it, you know, we we become overly attached to um, and overly identified with what we are putting out there publicly. You know, those those pieces of ourselves, like whether it's on LinkedIn or your resume or your academic CV, or you know, of course, like on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know, even those are curated, and there are these other, um, you know, parts of ourselves that that can't be. Um, quantified, that can't be necessarily like um, well lit (laughs) and beautifully photographed, um, but are nevertheless like really deep, important parts of who we are, you know, especially our relationships, um, our relationships with the people close to us. And I think, um, you know, it's something that uh, people don't um, give it and we don't give ourselves enough credit for um, the value that those kinds of relationships uh, bring to our lives, um, and they're they're their own kind of um, you know achievement. I think, even though you know we don't we don't think of it in that way.
0: I I love that poem. That was one of the exercises I sat down and did last night. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. What kinds of things did you did you uh, not put think that you would not put on your resume? Are you can you share any of them on the air?
0: Uh, I can share one. Uh, I had I electric car I don't want to be sued so I won't name what it was Uh, and it also had a small reserve gas tank and it turned out that particular electrical car had an electrical malfunction and I drove all the way from LA to Salt Lake on the reserve gas tank wow and I had to keep stopping on the side of these major roads that are largely used by semis to put gasoline in the tank and it was a very small reserve tank with this like funnel thing and I had to stop frequently because it had a very small reserve tank and as the semis were going by they were literally rocking my electric car because they're designed to be lightweight and droplets of gasoline are blowing towards my face and yeah um when I read when I read her poem I thought well that just memory just popped back into my mind and I thought you know that was really quite a lot of determination yeah to just keep going and I couldn't drive the speed limit so I had to drive the whole thing with the flat with my flashers on with some eyes behind me blaring their horns and
1: wow. pretty much
0: just um you know thinking wow I hope I make it
1: and I did yeah that's too bad you can't put the actually that on your it shows on your real resume I mean it shows yes so determination and um I'd say bravery and problem solving a lot of different things um yeah wow what surprised you the most in writing this book? Um, I mean, I was definitely surprised by, you know, what we talked about at the beginning about how um, strongly certain people felt about not being in the book <laughs> and, and and not being able to. And, and also that some people, I think, even though they've had rejections, they maybe didn't, um, like it was hard to to come up with a specific one. like. Um, and maybe it's because like i'm thinking of my friend again who um who didn't want to be in the book and part of me thinks like to be so successful you actually are experiencing rejection all the time it's like so often you almost maybe don't aren't even separating it out from the rest of your day like you get you get you know there there of course are going to be things that that knock you down a little bit but um so i guess that like the The amount of toughness and, um, and the, the kind of, um, the resilience that people need to have in order to be successful, like how, how often they experience rejection. Um, I was really surprised by the Angela Duckworth interview. I, I was amazed to hear how much that she still cries over rejection. Um, and I was also kind of, um, you know, in a certain way, I was like surprised by by how many people, you know, thought that this was an important conversation and wanted to be in the book and were willing to tell these stories that made them really vulnerable. I think it's hard, you know, um, it's hard to put yourself out there publicly um, and talk about a rejection. So I guess in a certain way, I was was surprised and I was glad that it, um, like, Hit a nerve for enough people that we were able to put together a book.
0: And finally, what do you hope listeners will take away?
1: I hope listeners will feel a sense of comfort. Um, and that, you know, if you've experienced a work rejection, um, if you haven't, you, you will certainly at some point that um, to know you're not alone, that it is part of everyone's path. And, you know, to maybe start to get comfortable in spaces where you where you feel, you know, where you feel OK about it, sharing rejections. So if you're a parent, you know, sharing experiences of rejection with your kids or if you're a, an instructor or a professor sharing with your students, I think for students sharing with each other and you know, being honest about when things felt bad, but then like that you were able to get past them. And I think those kinds of stories, um, it, it really helps people to hear them, especially from people who are close to them. And, um, and you know, that's what I was trying to do with the book.
0: Dr. Jessica Bacall, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your work on rejection and your book, the rejection that changed my life. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. And you've been listening to the Academic Life on NewBooks Network. I hope you will please join us again.